0: We're turning back in the Word of God now to Zechariah chapter 13, and verse 1 and verse 2. Zechariah 13, I know we read from Zechariah chapter 3 earlier, but we're coming now to Zechariah chapter 13. And we're told there, "'In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin,' and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also, I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. Amen. We know the Lord again will add his blessing on to the reading of His Word tonight. And let's please bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, again we look to Thee. We pray for Thy blessing on the preaching of the Word of God tonight. We pray that Thou will come near now in the remainder of our meeting. And as the Word of God is expounded and brought to our hearts, applied to our consciences, we ask that Thou will be evidently here. We don't want a meeting where we simply go through motions, and we tick boxes and feel, well, we've done this and done that, and therefore the meeting is due to be over now. Lord, help us to hear the speaking voice of God our Lord and Master. May we know our conscience awakened. May we not just be sitting sluggishly and about to sleep not only physically, but spiritually. We pray that I will to rise us out of that slumber, and may the Word of God have an impact upon our hearts. We do pray for those that have been bereaved at this time, and we do feel intensely the loss of our sister, Olive. We know what a stalwart for Jesus Christ she was in this congregation over many, many years. And wherever, wherever she went, we thank Thee for the testimony and the witness that unashamedly and in her own quiet way, she always bore. Lord, be with all the family members, we pray tonight. Be with them in their sorrow. And so we pray for Elizabeth and Karen and Eber Rose and all the other members of the family connection, and we know the connection there is large. We ask that thou wilt put the arms of thy care round about them, and may they be assured that the people of God are calling upon the Lord for them and are looking that God will come close and comfort broken hearts. Speak, we pray, on Tuesday. During the funeral service, uh, may a proper tribute be given to her sister, but may the truth of God above all other things, may it take preeminent place, may it be announced, and may those who come and who hear and are paying their own respect to our departed sister, we pray that thy truth will take hold of us. And may those who are in Christ, may we be encouraged to live more steadfastly and earnestly for Him and always to do something more for God. And those who are out of Christ, may they be solemnized. May the Spirit reach their hearts and bring them savingly into Thy divine and wonderfully warm embrace. We ask in Jesus name, and for thy glory alone. Amen. It was William Cooper, and it looks like it's spelt, and therefore should be pronounced Kuiper. But Cooper, apparently, was the pronunciation. He was an English poet, hymn writer. And he wrote the tremendous hymn that I think all of us will be very familiar with. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Cooper was born in his father's rectory at Great Berkhamstead in Hertfordshire on the 15th of November of 1731 his father was chaplain back then to King George II. His mother died when he was only six years of age, and that was a tragedy that put a long scar of sorrow right over William Cooper's life. When he turned 10, he was sent along to boarding school at Westminster, and really it was there that his problems were added to by the bullying and the cruelty that the other lads showed to him. Harsh treatment it was made it out to him then, and it seemed to make him exceptionally timid right through his days. But he is able to survive the experience there in boarding school at the age of eighteen. He commenced the study of law, and although he passed all of the necessary examinations to be called to the bar in the year seventeen fifty four, he never achieved any success in that chosen profession. He never practiced. There was an all-consuming fear that came on him of serving people. He felt he would let them down, and therefore he miserably failed to attract any business to himself. After nine years, it was arranged that he should become a clerk in the House of Lords. And still he felt very unfit for that task. And the misery that came over him then was resulting in such a dark, dark mood that he made several attempts on his own life. And due to those tendencies that he had, the darkness of his mood, Cooper was confined for a brief period to St. Alban's Asylum. And it was there within the walls of that asylum that, quite remarkably, this famous hymn was penned. A relative who called in to visit him tried to alleviate at least a bit of that depression that Cooper was afflicted by, and they told him about the power of Jesus Christ to save. And as he heard the story, Cooper burst into tears, and he joyfully maintained, it is the first time that I have seen a ray of hope. When that friend visiting him that day had gone, Cooper opened his Bible, and he just opened at random. And he started reading in Romans chapter 3 in the verse 25, and again it was about Christ. And that verse tells us, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. In other words, Christ has been set forward as a covering, as the great cleanser for our sins and our iniquities. And so when he read that and delved into what the text was saying to him, that account of Jesus' atoning purpose and his wonderful work, it touched Cooper's heart, opened his understanding, it thrilled his soul, and it enabled him to bear this testimony. He said, there shone upon me the full beams of the sufficiency of the atonement that Christ has made, my pardon in his blood. The fullness and completeness of my justification, and in a moment I believed and received the gospel. He was so overjoyed by that new find hope that he sat down, he took up his pen, and he described what had happened to him in verse, and what he wrote it leaned heavily upon the words that we're looking at tonight. Zechariah chapter 13 and 1, in that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And Cooper said at a time and in years that ensued beyond that time, he said, it's my desire that other troubled and perplexed and distressed souls like myself should be helped by the words of my hymn. But that desire was fulfilled, not on one occasion or on a couple of occasions, but on many, many occasions. The great famous Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon was so enthralled and captivated by the lines that William Cooper had written that he left instructions, when I die, and you're going to write something in my tomb, I want a couple of verses of Cooper's hymn to be inscribed on my tomb. And so if you were in West Norwood Cemetery in London, and you were working your way through, you find the grave of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you will read on the side of it these words, Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. You'd read on then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Another Spurgeon, Charles' brother James, an accomplished preacher himself, he often deputized for his brother Charles when Charles was ill. He said, this hymn has spoken to my heart as no other hymn has done. So it's obvious, these brothers and many others had a high regard for the hymn written by William Cooper. And I trust this evening, in fact, it's my prayer, my earnest prayer, that each one present in this preaching house and anyone that may be tuned in over the Internet tonight will have a similar respect and regard and even develop into a relish for the mean thoughts. The great theme that is in our text here in Zechariah, the chapter 13 and the verse 1, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. Notice, first of all, the comprehensiveness of this fountain. The comprehensiveness of this fountain. What I'm saying is, it frees, it flows so freely It stretches out so extensively, it is so entirely sufficient, because it deals with the greatest, the most gross sins that a man or woman is ever capable of committing. The evils of sin and of uncleanness. And you have those words in our text here. They underline the nature of evil. What sin is really all about? The first word that we have here, this fountain is open for sin and for uncleanness sin that's the most common word used in all of the Bible, for man's utter abysmal failure to measure up to or to meet the requirements that God has placed upon him. Primarily, this word has reference to the state of a man's heart, so it's looking inward, It's flagging up those inward attitudes and desires and the condition within the heart and the soul of man. It summarizes what we have in, for example, Genesis 6 and verse 5, where God looked down and he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that, and here's something that's very internal, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God sees right into man, and he sees there is a cesspool of iniquity swirling about in him. In Jeremiah 17 and 9, the famous words of the prophet where he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the answer is to that question, who can know it? Only God perfectly knows the state of our hearts before him sin, the state of the heart. But then there's another word used here about the nature of evil, and that is uncleanness. In Zechariah 13 and 1, in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. We're talking here in the main about the pollution of the hands. The kind of sin that expresses itself, that reaches out and practices and performs evil. Not just the lustful desires that are dwelling within the heart, but when those lustful desires take hands, have feet, and sprout into activity. Sin when it's full grown. Sin when it explodes into action. Sin when it comes out in all of its filthy maturity. Sin when it's transferring out of the realm of operation within the heart, within the mind of man, and we have it now in his hands. Our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 7 and the verse 21 through 23, he describes this transfer. He says, for from within out of the heart of man, that's its origin, proceeds. So, it travels out of the heart into activity, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, all the things that we see around us today in the world in obvious shape and solid form. An evil eye, he goes on, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And then our Savior notes again, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. And really we ought to be no doubt of it whatsoever tonight that every man and every woman and every young person stands staying with and guilty of and condemned by these types of evil in the sight of a holy God. He looks down. What does he see in me? What does he see in you? Sin. Uncleanness. And is he pleased? Of course he's not. He doesn't treat transgression as a trivial thing. He doesn't view sin as, oh, well, it's something that can't be helped, and it's natural that it'll happen, and we must overlook that. He doesn't take a a wink at our wickedness or turn a blind eye to it and pretend it's not there or do what we would want to do, sweep it under the carpet, hide it from view, let nobody know about it. He doesn't do that. In Habakkuk, Chapter 1 the verse 13, the prophet says, Thou art, that is God, thou art a purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look upon iniquity. And what he means is the Most High God is so holy that he cannot condone corruption. He is so holy that he cannot look upon sin with approval. He is so holy that he sees it as something totally abominable and detestable and outrageously unclean. One person has said of sin, man calls it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it an error. God calls it an enmity. Man calls it an infirmity. God calls it an iniquity. Man calls it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it wickedness. And we need to be alerted and stirred up to this fact that while I can apologize for and excuse every sin and iniquity that I think of and actually commit, God hates my sin. He finds it offensive. He finds it outrageous. He finds it detestable. And as he looks down upon us today, he sees us, all those areas of uncleanness, all those areas of sin in all of our actions, and that's even when it appears to us we're doing something commendable and maybe even charitable and good as far as the world judges. But God is saying, springing from the heart, a wicked heart, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? It's impossible. We're in a dreadful condition. What can we do? Sin and uncleanness. What is our need? Our need is to confess our sin. We don't discover a remedy. We don't encounter a Savior until we begin to mourn over our sin. Many years ago, there was a German prince, and he was entertained by the French government, and they took him down to the galleys of Toulon, and there's a number of men that are held as convicts as a result of their many crimes, and the commandant decreed there that because the prince has come to visit us, what we're going to do is this, some prisoner that the German prince will choose is going to be set at liberty and will pay no further price for their sin. And so the prince went round the prisoners, and he talked with them, and each one of them knew this man has been invested with the authority that he can set one of us free. So they knew they needed to impress him. But according to their talk, he found that they were nearly all innocent and that they'd been sentenced either by mistake or by injustice. And he passed them all by until he came to a man who spoke differently to all the rest. And that man said, I certainly have no reason to complain about the hard work that I've been assigned to here in the galleys for if I had my proper due. I should have been put to death for my crimes. He continued to admit with great humility the evils that he had committed in his life, the properness of the sentence that he was under. And the prince set him free and he said, This is the only man in the whole of this place who is in a state to be pardoned for he has a sense of his transgressions. He feels his sin, in other words, and so we can be trusted in society. How do we deal with sin? How do we deal with uncleanness? Confession of sin, that must come in. Then cleansing, and only then will cleansing of sin be granted. Our text announces here the fact that the fountain And when it talks about the fountain that is open, it's a picture of Jesus Christ, for He is the fountain of blood available for sin. It's available, He's saying, available for sin, it's available for uncleanness, but you'll not see that fountain, you'll not appreciate that fountain, you'll not take of that fountain and all of its value and vitality until your eyes are opened to be aware of your sin. And you're thinking, I need to mourn over the sin and wish I could mourn more over it. I am convinced of my own unworthiness. I am convinced that should I die tonight, be stricken tonight, and God send me to hell, I would go because I deserve to go there. I have nothing to plead. I can't say I'm innocent. I can't excuse myself. I deserve nothing but justice and wrath. Do you qualify? Is that what your admission is? Are you that person? If you are, then come Come and wash. Come to this fountain so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to His name. Why? Because there is a real and a glorious and a sufficient provision for sin. The blood of Jesus provides it. What a fountain this is. It's fresh, it's forceful, it's cleansing, it's converting, and it's the one thing that you need. An old hymn writer in England again, Augustus Toplady, wrote another famous hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of my sin, the double cure cleanse me from its guilt and power. And that's the basis of our appeal to God. I have nothing of myself to recommend myself to God. I can only appeal for the cleansing of His blood. And so we have the comprehensiveness of the fountain. We have, secondly, the commodiousness of this fountain, the commodiousness of this fountain. You'll find here it's an opened fountain, Zechariah 13 and 1. In that day there shall be a fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. So it's been provided. It's available. We're not directing you to something that's going to disappoint you, to something that'll look into your eye and say, well, we pulled your leg well on that one, didn't you? We fooled you. We conned you. We made you think there was a provision that would meet your sin, meet your uncleanness, and now look at you and your folly. You've come and you've tried it, and it doesn't work. We don't do that. Because in that day, there was a fountain opened. Opened. And at Calvary, this fountain has been opened. And yes, I know that people do say, you know, we love to hear about the gospel. But it seems as if we can't really grasp it and get at it. No matter what we do, I have heard a gospel message, or two, or three, or four, or twenty, or forty, or one hundred of them. I've heard them all. Well, why can't we grasp it? Because this fountain is open, it's provided just like the old-time drinking fountain, and I'd love to get one of these someday. You know the pump kind of job that you would have maybe still in some old village there? And it would have been available in the center of the village there for everybody to use, free to come along and slake your thirst. And as that was positioned there in a place where it would be available to everybody— a provision for the village. So the Lord Jesus Christ, He's not a fountain that's closed. He's not a fountain that is concealed. It's not barred. It's not bolted. It's one that is gloriously open to the whosoever will. And we do make the free offer of the gospel to your heart. Revelation 22 and 17 says, And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. The gospel fountain is open. So, what's provided? Not only that, it's plain. as God, the gospel is. It's not bound up in some unknown language that nobody can understand it. It's not wrapped up in hazy pictures or confusing symbols. It's plain, they would say, clear as crystal, and so it is. Let me repeat it. God must punish sin yours and mine. He must punish it. If he is to be God and stay God, remain God, he must do what his honor requires him to do because he is a just God. And when he sees sin, that sin must be punished. However, he has laid the punishment of sin upon his son, that whosoever believes in Christ is fully and freely forgiven. Romans 10 and verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What could be more simple or plain than that? So it's provided, it's plain, it's personal as well, this fountain. It's opened to the house of Israel, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Come along, house of Israel. Come along, inhabitants of Jerusalem. You're welcome to come and avail of the fountain. That's what the text is saying. Some people in our day would have you believe that grace comes through men. Say, a priest or a minister or something like that, and it can only come through those alone or through rituals and rigmarole in a certain church or denomination or any denomination for that matter. There is the fountain, but you must not dare to sample a drop out of the fountain on your own. Keep your grubby hands away from it. That's a purifying stream. You stand back and let that respected gentleman come along gracefully to the fountain, gesticulate in dozens of different directions, and Let him administer the cleansing to you. Well, that really wouldn't have worked very well, would it have done for the dying thief? There was a culpiter, a bookseller one time, and he was selling testaments, New Testaments. And the priest in the parish to which he came, he said to him, your books say a very great deal about pardon, but I don't see very much in them about confession." The bookseller was about to reply when a public dignitary, who was there as well, took up the Testament, said to the priest, ah, what you say is very true. The New Testament does not say anything about confession to priests. Don't you remember, here's the point, that Jesus Christ said to the dying thief, and what he said to him was without the help of a priest… Don't you remember that Stephen, who was stoned and wasn't examined on his death or coming to death by any confessor, but he entered glory without a priest. But that priest said that day the rules of the church were very different in those days from what they are now. Well, the Bible has always been the same. And the message will never be altered, and no man dare alter it. We have sentinels in Scripture, beginning in the middle and at the end, telling them, anybody coming to take away the words or add to the words, there will be terrible, dire consequences. And we have no need to go back to some empty ritual or some apostate blindness that would barricade the way of getting directly to the life-giving fountain that would stop us plunging into the crimson preciousness of our great Redeemer's blood, you and I, praise God, we can go directly to Jesus. May we always realize that and cherish that and announce that, because that is the wonderful message of this book. The hymn writer said, "'Lo, the incarnate God ascended pleads the merit of His blood.'" venture on Him. Venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinner's good. It's an open fountain. It's a plain one. It's provided, plain, personal, and it's powerful. Our text tells us here it's provided and open for sin and for uncleanness. So, if that's our condition, it's meeting our need. Don't be looking anywhere else. If the fountain is open for inward and outward sin, then it's sin that qualifies me to use it. And I have sin, and I need to use it, and it's the only thing that I can use. Oh, but I'm too sinful. Oh, no, none too vile or loathsome for a Savior's grace. It's a powerful fountain. There was a fallen girl... I'll not tell the full story tonight. We don't have time. But she was encouraged to write to her father and say, you know, I'm coming home. I want to change things around. I've repented before God, and I hope I'll be received by you again. And she wrote a letter to him. And the post was received in response to that. And the word of was written on it. When she opened it, well, it came to this. Come and welcome. I'm ready to forgive you. I've been praying night and day that you might be restored to me. And what that father was to his poor, lost, fallen girl, God is to every sinner that comes and seeks him. Those who repent of their sin believe only in the sacrifice of His Son for cleansing. He waits to be gracious. He yearns to be merciful. He is longing to of so that Spurgeon, already referred to, he said, there cannot be anything in theology, nor in nature, nor in heaven, nor earth, nor hell, which can shut what God declares to be open. If you come to Christ believing in him, there is nothing to shut up the fountain of life or prevent you from being cleansed and healed. The comprehensiveness of the fountain, the commodiousness of this fountain, the consequences of this fountain, if you read all From verse 1 in Zechariah 13 into verse 2. What do you find? It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also, I will cause the prophets of the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. After the cleansing, come to the fountain. There was a reformation that sparked off. Things changed. Sin was rejected and dealt with and that's what will happen in your life. There'll be a change that occurs. It's a radical change. You'll begin to hate the old things that you felt so attached to, you'd never be able to let your hand release them. Augustine, before his conversion, had been in the habit of associating with people of unclean living. And after a conversion, he met a woman in the street, and she said, Augustine, it is I. And he replied right away, yes, but it is not I. What he meant was, Augustine, now that he's converted, is another Augustine. He's changed. Practices are changed. Desires are changed. It's a radical change. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Paul writes about it again in Philippians 3. Forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward unto those things which are before him, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, does a believer sin? Of course he does. Of course he does. But sin is not the predominant feature of their lives, not the constant practice. They're not perfect. They do falter. They do fail. They do fall. They sin on occasions, but they take great encouragement from this fact the comprehensiveness of the fountain, the commodiousness of the fountain, the consequences of the fountain, the continuousness of this fountain, because they will know, because they read it in First John 1 and 7, that if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And you know what they'll understand? They'll understand that literally rendered those words carry this force. The blood of Christ keeps on cleansing from all sin. Thank God for that. Every step of the way, there's a supply of cleansing blood for us as fresh and as forceful as ever. This fountain from guilt not only makes pure, And give, soon as felt, infallible cure. But if guilt removed, return and remain, its power may be proved again and again. Don't hesitate to run to the fount and say, Lord Jesus, I'm coming to Thee. I need cleansing. I need my sin dealt with. I need forgiveness. I need to be purged. I need to be changed. And none but Jesus, I am convinced, can do me, a helpless sinner, good. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we call upon Thy name this evening. We thank Thee for the fountain that has been opened for sin and for uncleanness. Many have plunged in. We know people who, in the words of the little children's chorus, plunge right in, lose your sin. They've done it. And they're still doing it. And they're coming to the fountain on a daily basis. Lord, restore, revive, heal, bless. And we pray that there will be souls tonight who will say, Lord, save me. For I perish, cleanse me. Only in thy blood that flowed on Calvary. In Jesus' name and for God's eternal glory we pray. Amen.